0: If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, page 960 in the ESV Pew Bibles, 1 Corinthians 14, we're going to be looking at the verses 1 through 25, so we're not taking the whole chapter this morning. Let's go to the Lord prayer together. Heavenly Father, once again, we find ourselves gathered on the Lord's Day to to read and hear your word proclaimed. Father, we ask that we would listen in faith, that you would provide the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We want to understand your word, what it says in this passage. We want to know the meaning of it. And Father, we ask that um, we would be able to take this and, and apply it within the church body, within our own lives. And all this to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. First written about 100 years ago in 1920, the story of Dr. Doolittle by Hugh Lofting was the story of a man named John Doolittle who had the ability to speak and communicate with animals. And he was a doctor. And so the story goes, he decided to not see human patients anymore, but instead devote himself to treating animals. And he could talk to all the animals, but he spent the most time uh, talking with his closer animal friends, a parrot, a pig, a dog, a duck, a monkey, an owl, and a mouse and so the story goes and it was made into a feature film several times once in 1967 with Rex Harrison again in 1998 in the sequels with Eddie Murphy and then most recently in 2020 with Robert Downey Jr. And we understand why this story is so popular no matter how many times it's told no matter how many uh, how many new generations receive this story we get it the idea of talking with animals like we talk with with other people is so intriguing. It captures the imagination. It's, It's fascinating. How revolutionary would that be if we could speak and communicate and understand animals as well as we could with people? In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is not concerned with a fictional fantasy story of someone being able to understand animals his concern is for the church he wants the church to be able to understand each other when believers are gathered for worship when it comes to the spoken word in the church of Jesus Christ Paul wants each person to understand each other and it really is that simple it's it's pretty basic But this whole passage is about people understanding each other. And only then is the church built up. It's not about a miraculous and mysterious spiritual language that not even the speakers themselves understand. Instead, it's about a multilingual church in the first century and Paul's insistence that you must understand each other when you gather for worship. Understanding each other takes priority over everything, even above individual expression. Let's take a look at this passage, 25 verses of chapter 14, starting at verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if you with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, but none is, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are assigned not for believers, But for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Be, before we even begin the verse-by-verse verse walkthrough of this passage, I want to tell you what I believe the Bible is talking about when it says in verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue. We, we just need to lay this out here and attack it head-on. I'm convinced that when Paul talks about tongues... He's talking about known, human, non-miraculous languages. That's what tongues is. known languages spoken in the first century in in that world. Now, everything in this passage makes complete sense if we understand that speaking in tongues simply means speaking in non-miraculous, known languages. And in this case, it would be known languages that are not the dominant language in Corinth, and at that time that would have been Koine Greek. That's what they spoke in Corinth as as a dominant language. That's what was spoken in the Mediterranean at that time. It was Koine Greek. But when he speaks of tongues, he means non-Greek human languages used to communicate. And I also want you to understand up front, this is, not, this is not my idea. I'm not bringing this. This is not Pastor Kurt's take on 1 Corinthians 14. I didn't come up with this uh, last week in the study. Uh, you need to understand that this view that I'm going to be presenting this morning was first uh, published in Biblical Theology Journal in the 90s. It was recently featured, or more recently featured, on the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website, where Richard Phillips serves as, a, as one of the board members. It's held by New Testament scholar Kim Riddlebarger, who has taught at Westminster Seminary, California and is co-host of the popular podcast, The White Horse Inn. You've probably heard of that. And it's been published in a Bible commentary on 1 Corinthians, edited by John D. Payne, who's taught at RTS Atlanta. So I want to make sure you understand this is not some new idea that I came up with. This is a recognized view held by reputable scholars, uh, Reformed Uh, thinkers, and in fact, quite a few people believe in this view, and more and more people are believing in this view as time goes on, and the reason I believe is because it's the correct view. It makes sense. We also want to get prepared, so before we, again, head into the verse by verse, I want to lay down a few things that are going to help us as we go through. Number one, Corinth's historical and cultural setting. Sometimes, when people approach this passage and the church approaches this passage, they think they they look around at their own home church and then they kind of read into their context into this passage. Let's not do that. Let's not make that mistake. Corinth was a highly multilingual environment, it was a port city with not just one, but two seaports, one on each side. It's been described as a Uh, a commercial city, a boom town filled with commerce and trade. There were people from all over the world traveling through there and sometimes staying. As a result, it was a home to travelers and sometimes temporary residents from all over the world. And as a result, many people in Corinth spoke a different language than the dominant language, which again was Koine Greek. Now a local church tends to represent the community that, that surrounds it, and Corinth was no different. So we can conclude on the one hand that Koine Greek was the dominant language because it was the dominant language in the Mediterranean world. We can also conclude that there were several non-Greek speaking members that spoke uh, a language different than Greek as a first language and maybe spoke no Greek or maybe a little bit of Greek or broken Greek as a second language. Once again, others have observed and commented on this reality. Gordon Fee states, quote, the phenomenon of different languages would also have been commonplace in a a cosmopolitan center such as Corinth. So we need to understand the historical and cultural context of the city itself. This is an occasional letter, after all. Paul is writing it to them in, in that city at that time and not to us. It's for us, but it's not to us. Number two, barriers to understanding this passage. I want to deal with a couple of these up front. This passage may be one of the most confusing passages in the New Testament, probably in the top ten. It, I would say it does take first place as far as confusing passages in this letter, in this particular book. Not everyone in the church agrees on what tongues means today. And I think the primary reason is because of these barriers. And we're going to group these in faulty presuppositions and incorrect translation of key words. Let's take that first group first. Faulty presuppositions. Number one, some believe mistakenly that these are miraculous tongues, miraculous languages, that in short is a miraculous gift. That's a presupposition that's imported into the, into the text. They say, well, this must be something miraculous. Why does this one have to be miraculous? And the answer is, it doesn't. Are all spiritual gifts miraculous? We talked about steersmanship, administration, helping, giving, acts of mercy. They're not miraculous. Why does speaking in tongues have to be miraculous? And the answer is, of course, it doesn't. Not all spiritual gifts are miraculous in nature, and nowhere in the Bible does it state that this particular spiritual gift is miraculous, either explicitly or by necessary inference. So that's faulty presupposition number one, a miraculous gift. Number two, it is mistakenly held that the speaker does not know or understand what they are saying. And I would point out that nowhere in this chapter does it say that. I'm going to make the case that the speaker does know what they're saying. The speaker does understand what they're speaking when they speak in this and I keep using air quotes tongues and you'll see why in just a minute. So let's look at let's unpack that a little bit later on. And then number 3, not so much a faulty presupposition but just kind of a mistake. It's just a flat-out interpretive mistake. They're not reading this passage in the historic and cultural uh, context, like we just went over once again. They, they come to this and they look around at their own home church and they think, well, how, how am I going to interpret this in light of my experience today in, in the 21st century in my local church? And that's just not going to work. Number two, the, the barriers, incorrect translations of key words. And, and once again, this is not Pastor Kurt's thing. I'm, I'm not just starting to throw meanings on these words that don't exist. What I want to do is I want to break down about four key words show you that there are different ways to translate those words, give you biblical examples of how they're translated in the Bible and show you why uh, there's one particular way to translate it that is the best. So number one, mysteries in verse two. We discussed this briefly last week in, in our passage last week in chapter 13. Um, The the Greek word for mystery can be translated with two different meanings in the Bible. One meaning is for mysteries to mean that something, uh, the secret and and undisclosed will and counsel of God that's been hidden in past ages but now has been revealed with the coming of Jesus Christ. And it usually has to do with the gospel, the inclusion of the Gentiles, and everything that, that was not known to the Old Testament saints that is known to us now. For example, Romans 16 Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed. Also Ephesians. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed. So that's one way to interpret the word that's translated as mystery. Something that was hidden, but now revealed as part of the gospel. But the other way that mystery can be understood is something that means something that was just not known or unknown information. For example, Revelation one twenty: as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So in this case, mystery it was mysterious to John because he didn't know what the stars and the lampstands meant, but then after Jesus told him, he no longer, uh, it no longer remained a mystery because now it's known. So when we go through chapter 14, we want this second ver- meaning. Something, uh, simply unknown information that after it's made known, it's no longer a mystery. Verse 5, interprets. It can mean to explain, as in Luke 24, 27... And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus explained to the people on the road to Emmaus how the Old Testament concerned himself. It can also mean translate, as in translating something from one language to another. Acts 9.36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Very simple, straightforward meaning. It means Here's something in one language, but then we're going to translate it so that it can be understood in another language. When we go through chapter 14, we want this meaning. This, this keyword needs to be translated as translate and not interpret. Here's the big one, tongue. Okay, verse 2, and it's throughout the whole passage. This word can have three meanings in the Bible. Number one, a part of the body that's inside your mouth, your tongue. Here it is in Mark seven thirty three, and taking him aside from the crowd privately he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting touched his tongue. In that context it means his body, part the tongue. It can also mean the act of speech, first John three eighteen, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed in deed and truth. That word talk is the translation of the word glossa, which is which means tongue. And number three, tongue can mean a particular language spoken by people used to communicate. Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. In each of those three examples I just showed you, it's the same Greek word, exact same, but it's used to talk about the tongue, about the act of speech and language. When we go through this chapter, I would suggest that the best way to translate this word is language. Not only do I think that's a good idea, I'm going to show you from the text that the Apostle Paul believes that this is how we should interpret the word. There's only three ways to, to translate this Greek word, and obviously it's not the tongue, the body part. And the other one just doesn't make sense. The one who speaks in a speech? The one who speaks in a speech, that doesn't make sense. The one who speaks in a language. language, Yes, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, New Testament scholar and theologian Joel Beakey says, quote, to speak in or with a tongue means to speak in a particular language. I would agree. And then verses 10 and 11, it's translated as language here in the ESV and some other translations. I would suggest that the best way to translate this is voice. The Greek word is phone, and it is overwhelmingly translated as voice in the New Testament. I'm going to show you as we make our way through this, without question, the vast majority of the way that the New Testament translates the word phone is voice. And I would suggest that's the way we need to translate it here, not voice. Language. Why did we just spend all that time talking about it? Why did we go into detail about these words? Why why did we get into the weeds and get all technical? When I was a boy, I had a bike, and it was red, and it had a banana seat, and I drove it or rode it to school sometimes. And when I got to school, I parked it in the bike rack, and I took out a bike lock, and it was this chain with a translucent red plastic sheath And you turned it around and on one end there was this little key with teeth on it and the other end was a cylinder and you put the key in the cylinder and you spun the lock and then after school I would come out and I would turn the numbers to line up with the notch on the on the cylinder and then the lock would open if I turned one number to the right spot it wouldn't open if I turned two numbers to the right spot it still wouldn't open I had to turn all the numbers to the exact right spot, and then it slid out almost effortlessly. It's the same thing with these words. If we translate one of these key words the right way, it's still going to be somewhat confusing. Two, a little bit more clear, but we need all of these key words translated correctly to unlock the meaning of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So that's why it's, it's so important. We, we, we just can't start using these unclear words and, and, and unclear translations if we want to find out the, and understand the meaning. Let's begin in verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Love is the most important part of exercising our spiritual gifts. That was the main point from last week, and Paul made it very strongly. Spiritual gifts are a good thing. They are to be earnestly desired, especially prophecy. And you remember, this is because this is one of those word-based gifts. Prophecy is is someone revealing the words of God through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They They would be providing prophecy, just like in the Old Testament, the words of God. They were essential for building up and establishing the fledgling church. Now, there were a limited number of apostles in the first century, and they could only cover so much ground at any given time. It seems as if the Lord saw fit to provide multiple prophets to to all these local churches so that they could get a good start on the truth of God and understanding that truth. Verse 2, For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. So, based on this verse... Some people in the church will conclude that the speaker does not understand what they are saying. Because they say, see, no one understands them. It means not even the speaker understands what he's saying. But is that what it says? I would argue, no, it does not say that. Um, It says, uh, it doesn't say that the speaker doesn't understand. It doesn't say that anybody in the world doesn't understand. It's talking about the listeners present in the worship service. Charles Hodge wrote, quote, the meaning is not that no man living, but that no man present could understand. I agree. It seems to be saying no one present understands them. And I would argue because they're not speaking in Greek, they're speaking in their own native language. The one speaking in his own native language speaks not to men, but to God. How does that work? Well, God knows all languages. God understands all languages. So when someone speaks in their own native tongue, even though everyone else in the church at Corinth weren't understanding them because it was a foreign language, God understands them. So he's speaking to God and not to men. He utters mysteries in the spirit. This is one of those key words. Does mysteries mean something undisclosed and and a revealing of the purposes of God? Or is this simply unknown information? I would argue number two. That's the reason it's mysterious. It's because no one understands them. They're speaking in a non-Greek language. Verse three. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Those that prophesy who are speaking in a known language that everybody understands are directly building up the church. Then verse four is it's kind of a conclusion based on verses two and three. And. Once again, here's another reason why we should reject that faulty presupposition that the speaker doesn't understand what they're saying. Look what it says. The one who speaks in a tongue builds builds up himself. Now I ask you, how is it possible for someone to build themselves up if they have no idea what they're saying or talking about? And the answer is, it isn't. It's not possible to build oneself up if you have no idea what you're saying and you don't understand the meaning of it. So we reject that presupposition. Verse 5, Paul's saying it would be great if everyone could speak in tongues. Uh, Yes, that would be wonderful if everyone was multilingual. We could see how that would be extremely helpful in a multilingual church like Corinth with all these different languages and peoples represented from all over the world. That would be a great benefit to have something like that. But prophecy is still the greater gift since it communicates the words of God to that fledgling church. The one who speaks in languages is not going to be as helpful to the church unless somebody translates. Then it's going to be helpful. Then the church is built up. Verse 6, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in languages, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. Uh, First of all, this is another reason to reject the fact that that prophecy and tongues or languages are the same thing, because he says, if I come to you speaking revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or teaching, all those things could be spoken in a tongue or language. But it touches on another point. Have you you ever seen someone speaking fluently in another language? Someone who has a, a regular language, their own native language that they grew up speaking and learned and are very fluent in, like you and I are probably fluent in English, but then they have another, another language that they're speaking very fluently in. And, and even uh, another native speaker says, um, yeah, I can't even tell they have an accent. They're just really good. That's pretty impressive. In fact, the more languages that someone can do that in, the more impressive it is. Have you ever seen someone that walks in and said, yeah, I can speak uh, five languages fluently? Most people kind of take a step back and say, well, respect to you. That's really impressive. That's hard to do. Yes, it is hard to do, and it is impressive. And we can see why someone in the church might start to get a little puffed up if they're, if they're walking around uh, being able to speak multiple languages fluently. That's a very impressive gift. But it does not build up the church, even if they're rattling off this really impressive speech, When no one understands them. Sure, it's impressive, but it doesn't build up the church. And that's the whole point that Paul's making. We need to understand each other. Verses 7 and 9 illustrate his his main point. We need to understand each other. Musical instruments, if, if not played with notes that are clear, they're not really making music, they're just making noise. A bugle that is blown with indecipherable notes is not going to muster anyone for battle. Same thing here. If you're speaking in an unknown language, how is anyone going to understand what you're saying? Do you see how basic his argument is? Why, why does the church have to start throwing in all these things like, oh, it's this mysterious language. Nobody knows what it is. Um, it's this personal private language. It's spoken in ecstatic utterances. We need to translate. Just he, All he's saying is you need to understand each other when you gather for worship. It's a very basic argument. Unless you do that, you're just speaking into the air. Verses 10 and 11. This is where the word translated as language would be better translated as voice. Now, voice and language are related, but they're different. Uh, a language does not make noise. A voice does. Uh, a language can be shared by many people, but a voice is uniquely attached to to an individual. So language or phoné should be translated as voice, a noise or a sound produced in the throat vocally. It is overwhelmingly translated as voice in the New Testament. I'm just gonna list out a few examples. And as you listen to these, see how it's translated, voice. But also say, if I threw in the word language there, would the verse even make sense? And of course the answer is no. Matthew 27, and at about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice. John 10 4, the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Acts 2 14, but Peter standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed them. Would that make sense if he lifted up his language and addressed them? No. Acts eleven, seven, and I heard a voice saying to me, Hebrews 3. Today, if you hear his voice, Revelation 1.10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice. In fact, most versions of the Bible, the only place where this word in Greek, oh, by the way, each one of those examples, phone, 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 the exact same word in each case. The only place most translations of the Bible translate phone as language is, you guessed it, 1 Corinthians 14, 10 and 11. Every other occurrence is voice. In addition, the phrase without meaning at the end of verse 10 means without voice. It's aphonos. So the opposite of voice. It means silent or mute. In most versions of the Bible, the only place where this word is translated as without meaning is, you guessed it, 1 Corinthians 14, 10 And 11, and I think you're starting to see what I mean about the bike lock. Why would we, in one place of the Bible, translate a particular word differently than the rest of the Bible when it makes perfect sense to translate it consistently? If we accept the overwhelming New Testament translation of phōne as voice and aphonos as silent, then we would read something like this. There are doubtless many voices or vocal sounds in the world and none is silent, they all make noise, they can be heard. But if I do not know the intended meaning of the voices, I will be a barbarian to the speaker, and the speaker a barbarian to me." John Calvin thought that Paul was talking about the entire world meaning animal kingdom. Like people have a voice, a dog has a voice, a, a bird has a voice, kinda a la Dr. Dolittle. But even if we just mean people, that it makes perfectly sense if we use the word voice. If we don't understand the meaning attached to those vocalic noises, it is is as if we are barbarians to each other, making strange noises with our voices. Verse 12, strive to excel in building up the church. It's Paul's way of reminding them the purpose of spiritual gifts. It's to build up the church. And you can't do that if you come to worship showcasing or showboating your ability to speak multiple languages fluently. You can't build up the church if you come insisting that you worship in your own native language and it doesn't matter if anybody understands you. He's saying build up the church. You need to understand each other. Verse 13, therefore one who speaks in a language should pray that he may interpret. Once again, those who advocate for a miraculous spiritual language tongues approach look at verse 13 and say, see, Uh, This proves it. This proves that the speaker doesn't know what he's saying because he needs to pray to interpret. No, it doesn't say that. If, in fact, the church consisted of people with uh, different languages from all over the world and someone is speaking in their own language and Paul tells them to pray that he can interpret it correctly, that makes sense. Because... Rarely does someone when acquiring a new language acquire it at 100% overnight. Usually it takes time to acquire a new language. And a lot of these merchants or travelers might have known some Greek. They might have known broken Greek. And that is a very difficult task to be able to take your own native language and translate it into a language that you don't know that well. Even among modern translators we will see this happen. We'll see somebody translating and then they'll stop and they'll say uh, how you say, and then they'll, they'll try to say it, or um, uh, I'm trying to tell you what I mean, but there's, there's no word-for-word word equivalent in your language. Let me think. Um, and they're good at it. How much more so if somebody knows broken Greek and they're trying their best to, to translate it? Paul says, no, pray that God gives you the ability to translate it so that everyone can understand you and be built up. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Once again, miraculous tongue speakers would say, see, this proves it. The speaker is praying in the spirit. And even they don't know what they're saying because their mind is unfruitful. Once again, um, no, it doesn't say that. If you look in your ESV, spirit is not capitalized. It's because it's not talking about the Holy Spirit. They're not praying in the Holy Spirit it's literally translated, the spirit of me prays. In other words, Paul's saying the person, their soul, they themselves, they're, they're speaking. They understand what they're saying. But my mind is unfruitful. That may, that's a word that is talking about expected results that, that aren't there. It's not talking about the person's mind. It's, it's saying um, it's no benefit. My mind is unfruitful in producing fruit in the listeners. As one New Testament scholar translated it, My spirit prays, but my mind does not produce fruit in others. That makes much more sense. Verse 15, what's the solution? To engage both my soul, my person, and my mind in producing fruit in others. As the speaker does what? Look at verses 14 and 16. Pray, sing, give thanks. Those all sound like things that ordinary believers do in an an average worship service. This doesn't sound like the equivalent of prophecy. This doesn't sound like praying, singing, giving thanks. That's not the same as thus says the Lord, which is what prophecy is. So once again, we don't want to equate those two gifts. And by the way, why would God give the church the gift of prophecy and then give the church the gift of scrambled prophecy? And then very quickly give the gift of unscrambling, scramble prophecy so that it's more like prophecy. That just does not make sense at all. Our God is a God of order, and that is um, just unproductive at best. He says, pray, sing, give thanks so that others understand. Verse 16 and 17 are a practical example of why Paul's teaching makes sense. If you give thanks with your spirit, expressing what's on your heart in your own language, how can anyone be in the position, or how can anyone in the position of an outsider, and if you've got an ESD, there's a footnote, of him that is without gifts, or the one filling the place of the uninstructed or ungifted, and that's just a very convoluted way of saying the one who does not know, meaning the one who does not know your language. If someone who does not know the language you're speaking how can they say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? And the answer, of course, is they can't. You're giving thanks in your own language, but no one is being built up. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in languages more than all of you. Paul likely knew Aramaic, Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, probably, and maybe even more. Um, what doesn't, and that makes sense. What doesn't make sense is if tongues means some kind of private prayer language or a static utterance prayed in the spirit during personal worship. First of all, he says tongues, plural. How many private prayer languages would someone be speaking in or how many private prayer languages would the Holy Spirit give to someone on average? And second of all, how would Paul know if he spoke more in private prayer languages than anyone else in the worship service or in the church if they're private prayer languages? The answer, of course, is he wouldn't. If they're private, you wouldn't know about it. But it makes much more sense if he knew that we're talking about languages and how he's more multilingual than anyone else. Verse 19. Let's let's read verse 19 again. Verse 19 says, Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue or language. So, Paul's practice, even though he is multilingual, is to speak in the dominant known language so that everyone understands him. Greek, so that the church is built up. Now, Paul could have walked into the church in Corinth and showed off his Hebrew. He could have turned to the Old Testament and instead of reading out of the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation, he could have pulled out a scroll and read right from the Hebrew and just rattled everything off and everybody probably would have went, ooh, wow, it's just... That's incredible to hear it in the original language. But he didn't, because he wants everyone to understand him. He said, I would rather speak, (laughs) uh, I I, I want to speak in the language that the church understands, not in in my own language as impressive as that would be. And also, look how verse 19 reinforces our understanding of verse 14. He says, for if I pray in a tongue, a language unknown to the rest of the body, my mind is unfruitful, in producing fruit in others. Um, here he says, I would rather speak five words in my mind in order to instruct others. That tells us once again, when he says speaking in my mind, he's, saying, he's thinking of instructing others, being fruitful, being fruitful and producing fruit in others. To speak with his mind is to actually communicate meaning that is understood and builds the church up. Then in verse 20 and 22, we have a quotation from the Old Testament, that's Isaiah 28, and then a somewhat cryptic statement, uh, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. So what's going on there? Well, let's take a look at the quote first, Isaiah twenty-eight eleven: for by a people of strange lips, and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people, to whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. Now the first thing that catches our attention is that this doesn't exactly match what Paul quotes in First Corinthians 14. And the reason it doesn't match exactly is because sometimes the New Testament writers would quote from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Sometimes they would quote directly from the Hebrew, but other times they would just kind of paraphrase it. They would just kind of wing it. And they could do that because they were apostles. So they would just kind of give the sense of the meaning and it would help explain and make clear what they were trying to communicate in the New Testament. We can't do that. We need to be precise when we quote the Old Testament. But they were apostles and they could do that. And now it's scripture. It's New Testament scripture. So that's why it doesn't quite match up. But the idea behind this Free citation is this The people of God did not want to listen to God through his prophets like Isaiah, so he sent judgment on them. The prophets that God had sent spoke in Hebrew, but because they rejected the word of God, he sent the Assyrians to conquer them. And it was then that the people of God received foreign languages that they did not understand. It was a sign of judgment. This is a judgment passage. So tongues, or languages, are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers. So what he means by that is, if you continue to speak in these non-Greek languages during the worship service, where nobody understands what you're saying, so that no one can be built up, the body will not be able to understand the words, even as Israel was not able to understand the Assyrians and not being able to understand what is said is a form of judgment that God brings when his people do not listen and obey his word. Again, Kim Riddlebarger says this, quote, because of their current practice, the Corinthian church risks becoming like Israel and held captive to a people who cannot be understood. So that's what uh, tongues or languages, foreign languages, means as a sign for unbelievers. But then he said prophecy is a sign for Not for unbelievers, but for believers. Why? Because prophecy communicated the words of God to God's people. It builds up the church. Now, by the way, how is Paul using tongues in this quotation? What does tongues mean in Isaiah 28? Languages. Foreign languages. And what does Paul mean in verse 22 when he quotes it? When he says, thus tongues... Or a sign not for believers. Does he mean these things in our mouths? Does he mean the act of speech? Or does he mean languages? The text itself tells us how to understand and and translate that word glossa in the Greek, which is tongue. And it's to be interpreted and translated as language. That's how Paul understands it. Why does the church understand it as tongues and make it some kind of mysterious thing? It means language. Verses 23 and 25, a final comparison between speaking in unintelligible languages and prophecy, or excuse me, prophesying in a language that can be understood by all. Paul gives them a hypothetical scenario. He says, Look, if somebody comes in, an unbeliever, and they come into your church and you're all speaking in different languages, they're all going to think you're insane. They're not going to be drawn to God. They're they're not going to understand what you're saying. They're not going to be seeing the body worshiping as God intended the body to worship. There's not going to be any pointing to truth or pointing to Christ. They're just going to think you've all lost it. I mean, what what if we did that? What if we walked into a worship service and we saw everybody speaking in all these different languages? We would have thought, um, I'm in the wrong place. I I don't know what's going on here, but this, this doesn't look like something that's going to help me at all. I can't stay here. That's what Paul's saying. But if an unbeliever comes in and sees the church prophesying, communicating the words of God in a language that everyone understands, he says he is convicted, called to account. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and he is brought low, falling on his face, worshiping God. The word of God does that when it's understood. It brings conviction. It brings conversion. The Holy Spirit works through the word of God spoken in a way that people understand it to bring conversion. It brings an awareness of sin, an awareness of the, that the secrets of our own heart are laid bare before God. The word of God does that. And then finally, and declare that God is really among you as opposed to that God is somewhere else. For example, among the Jews or in the Holy of Holies, in the temple of Jerusalem. Instead, the word of God boldly proclaimed, the words of God being communicated and spoken. And so people are hearing the word of God displays that God is really among you, the church, those that have faith in Jesus Christ. God is no longer the God of Israel that resides in this temple made by human hands in Jerusalem. Now God is the God of everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And his presence is with his church. That makes a whole lot more sense. To summarize this passage, we could say this. Paul encourages the believers in Corinth to practice spiritual gifts with love and for the purpose of building up the church. Prophecy in tongues or prophecy in languages both build up the church, but diverse languages are only beneficial if they are translated so that the church can understand what is being said. When the church gathers and individual members all speak in their own language, it does not build up the church or present a positive witness to unbelievers. The word of God, when heard and understood, is what the Holy Spirit uses to convict and call sinners to faith. We're, we're already somewhat... Going long, so I want to skip the application of how to regulate tongues in worship till next week because that's really where Paul puts it. That's what the rest of the chapter 14 is. I want to talk about how to respond or engage with our brothers and sisters who believe they genuinely hold a miraculous spiritual gift and have undergone a second Holy Spirit baptism as evidenced by speaking in tongues. First, we need to understand experiences are often interpreted in light of our understanding of Scripture and the doctrine that we hold. So, a false understanding of Scripture, or a mis, or an erroneous understanding of Scripture, can lead to a misinterpretation of experiences. Moreover, if you know anything about the Charismatic or the the Pentecostal Church movement and and kind of uh, a section, of a branch of the Christian tree, you know that there is incredible in-house pressure to speak in tongues. Incredible pressure put on by leaders, put on parents to their children when they get old enough. Um, some charismatic literature instructs people in this way. Here's a quotation from something in print. If you want to understand the New Testament, you need, to, you need the same experience that all its writers had. Talk about pressure. Uh, people are often coached to, to begin this. They're, they're told to simply start making noises, to open their mouth, and whatever comes out, they're encouraged. They're told to just keep going faster, keep running with it, and all of a sudden you've discovered your own Holy Spirit language. Don't doubt it, because that's the enemy trying to doubt that you've received this miraculous gift. In addition, it's been my experience that the New Testament verses that deal with Tongues are grossly misinterpreted to fit this particular, to fit their particular teaching. For example, First Corinthians fourteen twenty-one through twenty-two, where Paul quotes Isaiah, is been used as I've read this in print, has been used as a proof text showing that the gift of tongues has been present since the beginning. It's been used as a proof text to show that the gift of speaking in tongues miraculously is a spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit has been given in the Old Testament and the New Testament. No reference at all to the invading Assyrian armies. No reference to how Israel rejected God's word and fell under judgment. judgment. And I think we could tell just from that brief look at it, that is not a positive verse. Isaiah 28 is not a a positive feel-good verse about affirming the the spiritual gifts that have been around forever. It is a judgment verse when read in context. So we cannot allow our experiences to to determine our understanding of Scripture. Scripture must be the determiner of our experiences. I have had very close brothers and sisters who claim to have had a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, who have been a part of this charismatic movement, who claim to speak in tongues, and to a person they interpret this passage and others according to their experience instead of interpreting their experiences according to Scripture. How do we respond to that? How do we respond to our brothers and sisters who genuinely believe that they have been given a miraculous gift and that they're speaking in some kind of spiritual, Holy Spirit language. Because in the end, they do not want to be told that they don't have a miraculous gift. So, first of all, I think we need to do this. We need to understand that they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you, if you know someone like this, if they have repented and believed in Jesus, if by the evidence of their walking with Christ they are they're obeying God's word and seeking to live out faithfully, then we need to affirm them as our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not a uh, grounds for breaking off unity or being suspicious of, of whether or not they're in Christ. But I also don't think it's helpful to directly confront someone that is genuinely convinced that they've undergone a second baptism of the Holy Spirit as evidenced by the speaking of tongues. I don't think that's helpful what we can do is encourage them, as we do ourselves, to interpret experiences by subject, subjecting them to the truth of Scripture. So I would ask, what does Isaiah 28 mean? Is, is it a word of encouragement, showing that the gift of miraculous tongues was present in the Old Testament and New Testament alike? Or is it a word of judgment upon Israel for rejecting God's word and God's prophets? Which is it? Was Jesus referring in Acts 1, 4 through 4-5, um, when he said to his apostles, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now? Did he mean Pentecost? A one-time, non-repeatable event? Or did he mean that throughout all time, some believers would receive a second-level baptism that other believers would not receive? Which is it? What does Paul mean in 1 Corinthians 14 when he uses the word translated as tongues? Does he mean a mysterious and miraculous spiritual language that some believers receive from the Holy Spirit and others do not, and that strangely there is a disproportionate amount of people who, believe, who receive this in charismatic and Pentecostal churches as opposed to other denominations? Or does he mean languages, non-Greek foreign languages? Which is it? We can also encourage them to remember that so-called miraculous speaking in tongues is not limited to people claiming to follow Jesus Christ in charismatic churches. There are other people that are, that are not in Christ, that are following other false religions or even cults that claim to have a similar experience. Are we to blindly accept all experiences as valid just because someone says they have had it? Are we to attribute all spiritual experiences and all experiences of tongue speaking as having come from God and being authentic just because they are reported? I hope not. And finally, this is helpful for all of us. We should not expect or seek after the spectacular and the miraculous. None of us should feel like we're somehow missing out on an authentic, spirit-powered experience of Christian life if we don't have a direct experience of a miraculous gift. That's not helpful. And I would say this, is not the saving of sinners like you and me spectacular enough? Is it not a miracle that any of us are here today who were once alienated and separated from God by our selfish sin, but yet now here we are worshiping and thanking God for calling us to himself despite ourselves. That is spectacular. God has already accomplished his most spectacular and miraculous act, the Son of God dying sacrificially on the cross for the atonement of sin, remaining in the grave for three days, rising from the dead, and currently reigning and ruling until he comes again in power and glory that is miraculous, that is spectacular, and I believe it is enough. When the church speaks and proclaims the gospel and the word of God in a language that people understand, the church is built up and sinners are called to faith. Amen. Heavenly Father, our prayer as always, when we open your word, is to understand your word Father, we continually pray that you would give us understanding. Help us to continually unpack and understand this this contested passage of the Bible. And Father, in our own lives, um, help us to never feel cheated or shortchanged if we don't directly experience some kind of miraculous gift. Instead, let us look to the most miraculous event of all time. Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, buried, risen, and coming again. And that through faith in the Son of God, sinners are declared righteous and made clean. Father, we give you praise for for this portion of your word as we do all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.